But I am really excited, um, partly because, uh, as maybe Tim had mentioned in, in previous weeks, we're going to start uh, the book of Acts. Um, when I was on a mission trip in Honduras uh, over the summer, it was really interesting. One of the, um, the Montoyas who we stayed with, and, and they're at the seminary, they sometimes have interns there. And uh, one of the interns was, I don't know, just asking me all these different questions, which was cool, because normally I teach high school and they don't ask you anything. You're like, this is why the Bible's important. They're like, whatever. Um, so one of the questions she asked me is, like, what is my favorite book of the Bible? I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought, like, what's your favorite book of the Bible? We really don't have favorites, right? All scripture is inspired by God. Um, but as I stopped and thought about it, I, I fell into her trap. Um, and I, I said the book of Acts. Like, I don't know why, but every time I read the book of Acts, like, no matter what it is, I just am super encouraged, super excited. Um, and maybe some of it is because, you know, what you see in the book of Acts ends up being, um, I don't know, it's like the highlights of like where God is working. It's, you know, when you read, read over, it's a span of about 30 years, but you don't kind of see that. It's like the next thing and then the next thing and God did this and God did that. If we probably like step back and look at our own lives, we could probably see how God is working in all these different facets. Um, but kind of in the day to day, sometimes we think like, you know, nothing's really happened in the last week, or I feel like I'm struggling spiritually, or, you know, all of that. But if we kind of noted all the highlights of our lives, we could see, yeah, God is working. Had me meet this person. Had me, you know, take this opportunity. And you can see how God kind of guides you through that. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Acts. But uh, before we actually get into the book of Acts, I kind of wanted to do, since I guess technically in two weeks is the promotion Sunday, so... You can either decide if you're buying into this or you want to go go see someone else. Um, <laughs> like he's had way too much caffeine, um, and so uh, so I, I wanted to do like kind of a preview and a precursor. Plus, you know, for those who come in, we'll, we'll start start at the beginning of that. And so I was thinking, you know, how would I title the book of Acts? And so I have kind of a so that question will be will be asked of you. You know, what is the book of Acts? If you had one statement that you would describe the book of Acts, how would you describe it? But as I was thinking about that, I was thinking like, well, how has that been different than God? How how God has been working through you know all of history? And so I really wanted to boil down like from. Um, Creation until um, that beginning of the book of Acts into kind of like maybe four movements, um, or at least I came up with that, because um, that's how I see kind of God working. You could maybe break it down in, in further detail. So I want us to look at a couple, uh, couple verses, a couple portions of Scripture, get your feedback on this, how you see it, how you think about it, and then... Um, I'll tell you if you're right. No, I'll just uh, we'll see, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see uh, how how that lines up with kind of what, the way I the way I'm I'm thinking about it. So, um, so let's do a brief overview of the relationship between God and man, and so we see that starting all the way back in the book of Genesis. Um, so, what did it look like that relationship between God and man way back in the very beginning? So Genesis one through three. So so turn back to Genesis one. We'll look at a couple verses kind of support some of the things that, that we're looking at. But, but how would you say, um, like, what, what was, how would you describe maybe those first three chapters of Genesis? Um, 
And it's sometimes hard to stop and think. I mean, especially in those few chapters, like a lot's happening. Um, but how would we step back, particularly with God's relationship with man? With man. Okay, there was perfect unity, and then there was division. So much in so few chapters, okay? Um, what else? Creation and corruption. Cre- corruption. Wow, you guys should write commentaries. You guys are... <laughs> <laughs> the seven C's, all right. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. So, so everything is... Yeah, I had a seminary professor that always talked in... Uh, like uh, everything started with the same letter. It was kind of it was kind of a joke. Anyway, that's I'll probably mention him later. Uh, all right, so uh, creation and corruption. Okay, um, man was created. Right, this world was created. Um, you know, and I think sometimes when you read through Genesis one, um, it almost obscures like the idea. Like we read like the the this was created and that was created and we look at the days and sometimes we get hung up on, you know, was it a literal six-day creation or something like that. And I think all of those things are, are, are good to discuss. I think one thing that, that we need to pull back and, and think about is that everything that God created was for the benefit of man. Uh, and I was talking to Shane, you know, we were talking about the, the eclipse. Um, any of you guys see the eclipse? Well, I guess everyone saw some of the eclipse at some point. If maybe you had to strain through the sun, partially blinded. Um, but uh, but Dan, we see the, the eclipse in its totality. So okay, we we did we did we went to South Carolina where Sarah's got some family and um, did some work over there and then got to stay and, and it was it was amazing. Like I just was thanking God because it was like forty percent chance of rain and then it was supposed to be overcast all day, so it was getting better. And there was these big white clouds, and then eventually when it came, it was just blue. And so it was, it was perfect. Well, the one thing that like, you stop and you see that you don't get with like, the partial totality, you, know, you see the kind of the moon, is like how the moon perfectly covers the sun. And that's talked about as, um, you know, from intelligent design uh, um, proponents, is that you know, if you were too close, it would obscure. There's, there's two things. One, if the, if the moon was uh, too far away... You'd see too much of the sun. And you notice that as soon as the moon passed, there was like just a tiny little dot of the sun that peeked through. I don't know if there's like a valley or something, but you see like this little, and, and right away you had to put the glasses on. You see how bright the sun is, which is amazing in its own aspect. Like, you know, it is that bright. It is that, you know, powerful. Um, and so if it's too far away, you, just, you wouldn't see anything. Like you wouldn't even notice that eclipse unless you had your special glasses, which for, you know, for most people before the invention of those glasses, um, you wouldn't, wouldn't even notice it. It wouldn't be just a thing. And then the opposite would be uh, if it was too close, like the moon was closer, it would obscure the sun so much that you wouldn't see like, kind of the sun's corona. But the way that it's there is it, it kind of has this like, halo effect and it and it's it's just striking. It was so it was it was a cool thing. I mean, it wasn't like like life changing. Like you know, I need to quit my job now because I saw the <laughs> the eclipse. Um, but that was the remarkable thing is that the family we were with, you know, some were believers and some were not. And um, and so, but the the thing that was was like it was striking for all people, no matter what mankind. When you see that event, 
And the thing was, like, oh, I could see if you didn't understand what was going on, how it could be a scary thought. And uh, you hear animals, like the you know, birds going back to their nests, and you heard uh, you know, crickets chirping because they thought you know, it was nighttime. And, and so it was, it, was, it was interesting. It was kind of a thing, a good, good moment to, um, to take part of. But when you read through Genesis, like everything was made for man, right? We, we read that the stars were made for navigation, and the, the moon and the, and the sun is made for light for man to see, whether in the daytime or at night. And all of those things were made with man in mind. If you're in uh, Genesis one twenty-seven, we'll get a. Someone read that for me. One twenty-seven. Uh, we'll say twenty-seven through thirty. I'll read it. Okay. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it." Okay, so the pinnacle of, of creation in chapter one, we see it was man. It's kind of like, you know, if you, I don't know, if you ever got an aquarium or um, something for an animal to be in. I don't know, I guess if you get a puppy or a dog, right, you create like an environment for them. You know, because the whole point is for that animal, for that creature. It's not just like, you know, I think, you know, maybe having water would be good. And I think like a little rock would be good, you know, just kind of fun. And then, I don't know, let's throw some fish in there. And so the whole mind is like you set up your aquarium for like the fish. And you put the things in there, a little diver or whatever you get, you know, the clam that opens up. Um, whatever fits your taste for the aquarium. The fish will like that. So that, that's the whole thing is that everything was made with man in mind. And we even see that, that... All the plants, all the animals, like had man in mind. And so, so we see what that looks like, that, that we are a, a part and a, of, uh, not just a part of creation, but we are the focal point of creation. And before our heads get too big on that, we'll see um, why that needs to be corrected. So if you turn to chapter 2, um, uh, can someone read verses 15 through 17? 15 through 17. Okay. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so we got man, everything was given for man, you know, but God knew that there has to be some guardrails, some things for man to do. I see that with my kids. You've got the day off. Do something. And they just sit around. They're like, oh, we don't know what to do. You know? And so, um, so God knew that we'd be like, oh, you know, what do I do? Why don't you go name the animals? Oh, I did that already. <laughs> um, <laughs> it wouldn't be like that. That's, that's a part of sin. Adam wouldn't have had that. But um, God said, I want you to do these things. But I also, I want you to not do this one thing. Right? So there's, there's plenty of things you can do, but there's also like a thing that I don't want you to do. And so he's, he's setting up kind of some, some parameters. We'll see that develop over the course of history. Um, but God just said, let, let me just give you one thing. Okay? One thing to just kind of steer clear of. Everything else, 
I want you to work the ground, so you have to keep this garden, and that's, that's uh, the desire. And so what, what happened? What happened? In, in Red Chapter 3. <laughs> you guys know, Shane, Shane said that, right? It was unity, and then it was dis- disobeyed, right? And we see the whole, whole thing with that. And God walked, in, you know, was walking in the garden and then asked, like, what happened? And they were like, oh, she made me and he made me. And, you know, there's all this blame shifting and all of that. But early on, you know, we see that God creates man. God gave man responsibilities and man disobeyed. But even in that disobedience and that there is, like, I told you not to do this and I have to. I have to step in and do something about it because I'm a good parent. I'm a good father. I'm a good God, so I have to like say, you know, don't do that. Okay, next time, don't do that. No, this time I really mean it, right? So there were consequences that came right away that we've all like experienced because of that. Um, toil at work, pain in childbirth. Um, but what was the promise? We all haven't experienced pain in childbirth, but um, no, yeah, it was we've we've wished. What's that? Like toilet work. Toilet work. <laughs> Sometimes our work feels like that. Sturdy jobs. Um, toil and work. I'm going to blame the coffee on that one. Um, okay, so, but in Genesis 3.15, Genesis 3.15, what do we get? Someone read that? Okay, so what, what do we see here? Does anyone know what this is called, like this, this verse is sometimes referred to? Yeah, Proto-Evangel is uh, like the first, you know, um, evangelical statement. Meaning, right, that, uh, that there's going to be enmity between the serpent, Satan, and their offspring. And there's just going to be this toil that's going to happen. Toil. That's going to happen, not only like with what I've had you do, but just your heart's desires and like the, the pull of sin to, to attack each other. But I'm going to, um, you know, there will be an offspring, and it's a singular. He shall bruise your heel, and you shall bruise his heel, this offspring. And so we see in that picture that we see developed overall that there is a glimmer of hope. Um, and, you, and when you read Genesis 4, you kind of get that idea that maybe um, Eve thought, you know, Adam and Eve thought that their kids might fulfill that, and we realize that that's not the case, um, that there will be later be this one conqueror over Satan, um, who we know is Jesus. Um, but that's, the, that's kind of the very beginning. So what the relationship looked like. That God gave... Made man, put him in a garden, said, I want you to do these things. I've given you a man and wife. You know, it's kind of interesting. Why isn't God just enough? No, I want you to have a companion. So many, so many things that we could go into in detail on that. But just kind of the big picture is that man disobeys, but God then says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this glimmer of hope, this, this Savior. And we'll see kind of how that builds. Like, why, why do that? Or what was the whole point of that? And, you know, how, what is God doing in this framework that he's setting up? And so we see that kind of in the next, maybe, advancement. Um, so over chapters 4 through 11, how did the relationship develop with man and God? It got worse. Okay, it got worse. 
So what, what happens in chapter 4? That's Cain and Abel. Okay, the first murder, right? We see jealousy and we see murder that happen in chapter 4. Um, somebody read uh, Genesis 6 and read verses 5 through 6. What happens in chapter 6? Or at least we see the beginnings of that. Yeah, so, so we'll see that. But what does it say in uh, verses 5 through 6? Okay. Can someone read it? The Lord saw that wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he grieved him to his heart. Okay, so it's pretty bad, right? He sees that all these things, like, I made you the stars, and I made you the sun, and I even put, like, this, you know, the moon a certain distance from the sun, so every once in a while... Uh, you'd have this, you know, awe-inspiring moment. And, um, and so, but he said, but you guys, you know, you guys just kind of are, are runaway trains. And so um, when I am giving you the option, uh, we see what man chooses, right? On their own, and there's a, there seems to be very few, very few instances of those who follow God. But you know, as, as he says that the wickedness of man was very great and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, right? A man will continually to choose if it's God's way or man's way. They're like, we're cool with what we're, what we're choosing. Even though God's way, right, provides blessing from God, even though God's way will... Um, hopefully avoid pain. That's what you see all through the book of Proverbs, even though they're kind of truisms for how you live your life, and although sometimes every instance doesn't um, match up exactly. It's, it's If you follow God's wisdom and God's plan, for the most part, there's always exceptions to the rule, for the most part, you will do well in this life. You'll have security, you'll have safety, um, and, but ultimately you'll have God's you know, approval and blessing. And so, but, that's not what we see. And then what, what happens in chapter 11? You guys remember that? Specifically, you can look at verse 4 in chapter 11. Because evil was in man's heart, and so God just wipes out everybody, except like the one guy who was faithful, and uh, his family. And so we're going to start over. And things are going to be better now, right? They are going to learn their lesson. Like, it's severe punishment. I've taken away all your belongings. I've taken away everything. Um, you know, this is tough love. And that'll do it, right? If I, if I show you an instance of, of, you know, I mean business, and I flood the earth, and everything dies, everybody, you know, you witness that, and it's heartache, and, you know, they're going to tell their grandkids about it. Like, you won't believe what God did, and, you know, all that, that, that should instill in them a healthy fear to follow God. But what do we see in chapter 11? So someone read verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay. So God had said, I want you to be, he told Noah, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, and I want you to fill this earth, everything that I've given you, right? I've given you all of these toys, and you only want to play with this one thing, right? You know, like, go, like, enjoy everything that I've given you, multiply, you know, have children everywhere, fill the earth that I've given you. I've given you all of these things, the animals, the plants, all of these things for your benefit, and all you want to do is come together 
And what? Worship God? No. What do they want to, who do they want to worship? Themselves. We want to make a name for ourselves. And so they want to build this tower. And so that's where then God, you know, uh, changes the language. And so that forces them to disperse. But again, all of these things are, are short-term temporary measures changing the physical situation. And we know that that doesn't do anything. Um, so... In chapters 4 through 11, there's a demonstrated pattern that if you're choosing God's way or choosing man's way, man is going to choose his own way. Just left up to that. So he decides to focus in on a man and his family. And so really the whole rest of the Old Testament, we see kind of a change. Now what changed with, what, what changed with Abraham? What changed with Abraham? So, particular people were chosen. Is it because these people were perfect? No. Okay, and that's demonstrated clearly uh, in that. But God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with a family. I'm going to start with you, uh, Abraham, and I'm going to um, have you worship me. Because all of these other people, as they've dispersed, they would just want to worship themselves. So, I'm going to start over, and I'm going to focus with you, and hopefully... That you, as you grow and as you get this right, and as I show you that you've gotten it wrong, that you'll grow and your influence will start to expand. Um, but I want to focus on you. And he picks, you know, again, out of a pagan culture, which was really everywhere. Although we'll see pockets of people really worshiping God. That's kind of the whole thing with Melchizedek. Uh, that you're like, whoa, there's this guy who worships God who wasn't a part of that line. That's, a, that's another, another topic. But there are a few that we see that's worshiping God, and they've probably heard the stories about the flood and all of those things and, and know to choose and, and to follow God. But God says, I'm going to start with you as a point of influence for the rest of the world. And so God chose a family and chose Abraham. And right as he chooses him, what, is, what does he do? Does he say, I want you to not do, like, was it like Adam and Eve, where I, I want you to not do these things and I want you to do these things? What's that? He wants them to move. Okay, he does tell them to, to move, and so they do start, start moving. But right at the beginning of chapter 12 is, we see the what? You guys know? Right at the beginning of chapter 12. Promise. The promise is made to Abraham, right? And so God starts out this whole adventure with like, hey, I want to promise you these things. And part of the whole reason about moving is like, I'm giving you land, and I want you to go to this land that I'm going to provide for you. And I'm going to make you as numerous as the stars. And he picks again, like, the uh, most improbable person to, to choose because Abraham and Sarah were old. They were, they were past childbearing age. And they didn't have any kids. But he's like, I'm going to make you into a nation. He's like, if you chose, like, you're choosing the wrong person. Why don't you choose my cousin who's got 12 kids? You know, like you can already start with them. He's like, you know, that's a nation, you know, ready built. Um, but he says, no, I want to choose you because I want to demonstrate for you over the course of time that I'm going to make these promises to you, but I'm also going to prove them to be true. What does he also establish? Um, so turn to uh, chapter 15, verse 6. So you can, you, you can read the, the promises in chapter uh, 12, 1 through 2, but he basically is land. 
um, a nation, and also I'm going to bless the whole world through you. So we see a glimmer of looking back now that he's pointing, talking about Jesus. But at that point, he, he wasn't sure exactly what that, what that looked like. But what does he say in, in verse uh, 6? He, he repeats the blessings to you in verse 5. He says, uh, look at the stars, and you'll offspring be numbered as the stars. And verse 6 is kind of, a, kind of a, again, another stepping stone in man, God's relationship to man. So what does that say in verse 6? Okay, God makes these promises, and God, who knows the heart of man, who knows Abraham's heart, sees that he believes him and trusts him. God starts it off by saying, I'm going to do these miraculous things, and then he, Abraham could have said, like, well, we'll see. All right, you know, we'll see you know, what, what this truly looks like. But Abraham clearly demonstrates, again, not because he's perfect and he messed up in a whole bunch of other things that we see along the way. Sometimes when we look at some of these stories, we're like, why, why is that included? And that's part of the reason it's included. And so we see that they mess up too. Um, and that it wasn't because of who God was, but God is establishing that trusting him would fulfill the promises um, that he made. And by that trust in these promises, that is how man can be made right with God. If that trust is credited to him as righteousness. And so we start seeing what that looks like. And you know, Paul developed that in, in Romans, and so we got to go through that in detail. But what that would look like, that is not by what you do, but it is by what you believe. And we believe on a Savior who we do not see, right, but whom we trust, whom we trust. And God, you know, proves that in our life by showing us those markers in our lives of confirming that trust, just as he did in Abraham in a physical, tangible way. Um, now, the rest of history is God giving man responsibility, just like he did in the garden. I want you to do these things. And so some of it is developing into, as you become a nation, um, you're, you know, I want you to build a tabernacle, and I want you then to, you know, I want you then to build a temple, um, and I want you to come, and as you guys, uh, I want you to have corporate worship, and I want you to do these things, I want priests, and all of these things would symbolize different aspects that Jesus would fulfill, it would symbolize different aspects about how man is to relate to God, um, that there is something special and something holy about God, about God's character, about how man and God are separated in a you know, huge way. And we see that being played out all throughout history from you know, Genesis 12 through Malachi. And we could kind of subdivide that up into different, uh, into different groups. Um, we see that disobeying comes with punishment, we see exile, and we see a whole bunch of other things. We see the you know, earth opening up and swallowing people, and uh, people not being able to, you know, when they go into the promised land of uh, losing victories, and just all of these things. Book of Judges, I mean, you can go through all the different books and see, like, tangible physical evidence of how God is developing this people. But he, he's starting with a group and expanding them out as he wants them to have influence. And he's developing how they are to relate with him, and he's teaching them certain things about who God is and his character, um, and that uh, they need to obey in order to be blessed. That, it, again, it's not about doing, but trusting in those promises is how you actually become righteous. Um, and if you disobey, there's always punishment, but there's always hope. 
You can look through all you know, the scriptures, especially when you get to the prophets that, you know, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are like, these things are going to happen and the Assyrians or the Babylonians are going to come in and destroy you and all that. And as like harsh as all those things have, then follows it out. But there's going to be this root of Jesse. But there's going to be the suffering servant. There's going to be the savior. That there is always hope for the future. And so... You know, as we, even as we look in our own lives and, you know, as us as parents, as we instruct our kids and show them that there is diso, you know, punishment for disobedience, that we always give them hope um, in a Savior. So that's, that kind of like covers the Old Testament. So what changes with Jesus when we look at the Gospels? What changes with Jesus? How does that, how does that paradigm change with Jesus? Or does it? What do we see with Jesus? A little bit different. Okay, right? You know, Jesus even said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? He's, that's his, that's his like, statement about why he's here. I'm here to fulfill all of these promises. Now, who was he sent to? What's that? He was sent to the Jews, right? He was sent to... His people. We see that in Matthew. Flip all the way to the New Testament. Matthew 15, 24. Um, it's right in the middle when, uh, you know, this, this Canaanite woman who would not been a Jew, um, you know, was crying out to Jesus and said, have mercy on me. And, uh, you know, the disciples were like, well, send her away. You know, she's crying and she's bothering us and she's not one of us. And, and Jesus says, what does he say in verse 24? Okay, like I, I was here, like, listen, I'm, I'm not here for the Canaanites. I'm only here for the house of Israel. Now, part of that was instructional, um, which is it's true, right? Uh, all these other pagan nations, like if Jesus went, you know, was sent to Greece, you know, and started walking around, like they'd be like, well, you know, you mean nothing to us, right? Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that God had shown, right? And the Jews that were placing their trust in these promises that a Savior would come, he's like, I'm here, Right, and so he's not only a, f- a fulfillment, but he, he's he's that physical, tangible. I am here on the scene for you, showing you, proving to you that these things that were said, like I am here now, doing for you, just as you know with Abraham, that his trust later would be confirmed in different things. One, you know, several several things is when uh, when Sarah became pregnant. In a miraculous way, like, whoa, we have a kid. You know, maybe this kid will become a nation. Um, and then for all the, the subsequent lineage, they start seeing them growing and becoming a nation, just as it was promised. This blessing of the whole world would soon be fulfilled and promised. But Jesus said, I'm not here for you. And so, but was that, was that the end of the story? If you guys know the story. Did you say, like, I'm not here for you. Beat it, woman. <laughs> like, he says, this is why I came. But what, what do we see? So if she says something insightful, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, a woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And so we see that, right, well, you, you believe, even though you have no real reason to believe. And she probably growing up in the area would have 
more of a reason to base her faith on these things, but she's basing her faith on trust in, in him, in Jesus, the one who is there, that he will do those things because he was sent from God. And Jesus says, yes, it is to you that, um, that I will bless. And so, so God sends his son with Jesus, and those promises now become fulfillment. Now, how did his own people... The people who he was sent to, how did they respond? They, re- they rejected him. Yeah, and there's a couple of verses that we could go to to see that. But, one, Jesus says that the Son of Man must come, and he must be rejected. So he kind of promised that these things would happen. And we see that's exactly what happens, right? And first, he's rejected by his own people. That's kind of the interesting thing when he goes to Nazareth. And that's, that's always a, a portion of Scripture, like, why, you know, of all people? But he just says, you know, I, I needed to be rejected, and it starts with those that, that at home. And then it eventually leads to all the elders and the leaders rejecting him. A lot of his disciples left him. And so not everybody rejects him, but for the wide, wholesale, the people who knew him closely... And the people who were the leaders, you know, of anybody to uh, confirm this fact, it should be either those who know him, who grew up with him, or those who are the spiritual leaders. But they both said no, and so we can, you know, wholesale say he was rejected by his own people. And so in the Gospels, we see kind of those facts. But Jesus yet went to the cross, and Jesus said, forgive them, And Jesus yet did those things to fulfill what God had said and to provide that tangible aspect. You believe not only in my promises, but the promises will all culminate in Jesus Christ. And that is who we we place our trust in. Not in a thing, not in a hope, not in a desire, but now in a person whom God sent, whom was rejected. And so that's where we get to in the very beginning of Acts. And so we see Jesus for just a few verses, and then he is sent back to heaven, or he goes up to heaven and ascends to heaven. And so what changes when we get to the book of Acts? What changes when we get to the book of Acts? Holy Spirit. Okay? So we see the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had, had talked about that in, um, in the book of John. And it says that I need to leave, I will send you a helper. And that was talked about in the Old Testament, that God said, I am going to place my spirit within you. And Jesus is a man standing there, and so how can Jesus, you know, how can God's spirit, if we're supposed to place our faith in Jesus, be put in man? And that's the answer, is through the Holy Spirit. And so we do see the Holy Spirit will come, and that's very very beginning in, uh, in, in Acts chapter 2, um, when we see that. What changes in the whole plan of, uh, of God's relationship to mankind? It's no longer just the Jew. Okay, it's no longer just the Jew, but it's the Gentile. Okay, it's a mystery, yeah. And, uh, and so now the pathway widens. And so... Jesus came to be sent to his own people and needed to be rejected to his own people because now is the time that we could go now focus on everyone else. And we'll see in verse 1-8, that's kind of the mission statement for, for Acts, um, is that I want you to be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, 
and all Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but I want you to widen your circle that eventually to all the ends of the earth will be able to participate in this plan of salvation. I promise that back to Abraham, um, you know, first, I made all everything in creation for everyone. It wasn't just for the Jews, and it wasn't just for Adam and Eve. It was like there for everyone. Um, but I knew I had to start somewhere, and I'm starting with this family, and I'm starting as they grow into a nation, and we're demonstrating that they mess up continually, and so it needs to not be in these rules and regulations and ceremonies and what you eat and what you dress like and all of that. It needs to be in, in a person. It needs to be me sent to you who will demonstrate all of the things that I've said by doing miracles on this earth. He will demonstrate and show that the message that he preaches is true. And so then now the gates can swing open for all of mankind. And that's really what we're going to see in the book of Acts. So what, how, would you title, how would you title the book of Acts? Maybe you guys come up with a better title than, uh, than the book of Acts. So what's that? Acts of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, typically it's Acts of the Apostles, and some, some Bibles will have that. Acts of the Apostles, and it's like, what did they do? But really, yeah, a better term is you know, Acts of the Holy Spirit, and what is the Holy Spirit doing through these men as they go along? Um, what's God's focus now? We're going to start seeing something particular, and that instead of working in a nation, he's working in what? He's working in the hearts of men. Well, we don't want to get too individualistic because sometimes we can. Um, that God is like, because because all throughout it was always a corporate thing, and that that identity has not been lost. You know, it was corporately. How does Israel and Israel? If you disobeyed, and so in sometimes you know, often in the church, because our relationship with God is individual. You know, like you can, right? You know, your spouse doesn't get to heaven because you get to heaven. Um, but So that is an important aspect, but what shouldn't be lost is that God is moving corporately as well. But instead of through Israel, it's now through what? The church. And that's what we're going to see, is that God is going to expand um, His influence through the church. Through the Holy Spirit, individual hearts, but as they come together as churches, and we're going to see that, uh, that these entities that God is going to use and to bless. And so, and then He... You know, and that's how, that's how um, God will have his influence, especially from afar, as Paul writes letters to these corporate churches to address specific issues, which sometimes hit to the heart individually and sometimes to the heart collectively as they interact with one another. Um, before we get into Acts, um, and some of the, some of the reasons I, I, just, I love Acts is because of, of the things that are discussed and some of the history and, and some of the things that, you know, as, as they're moving along. But why do you think um, God sent Jesus at the time that he did? Right? Because uh, that's what it says in Scripture, that Jesus was sent at the right time. So why do you think? What are some things... And part of this is like, uh, I don't know, was it just because? There are certain things that, um, that were helpful at the time that Jesus was sent. I mean, I don't know, maybe it would be better for Jesus to have been sent now, right? And he could have just sent things through the internet, right? And he could have had his influence, <laughs> influence that way. So, so what, what, was, what were some things that were unique about 
why Jesus was sent at the time he did. So um, I'll give you a few. One is that there was no strong Jewish government. Right, the people were looking for an opposition leader. That had been happening for several hundred years, ever since the uh, exile. But then they came back to their land, but they were always under domination. And so they were under um, you know, the domination of uh, the Babylonians. And then when they went back to the land, it was still under the Persians. Um, and then the Greeks would come in under Alexander the Greek. Uh, and he would... Um, Alexander the Greek. Alexander the Great. I was like, that didn't sound right. But um, he was Greek. He's Macedonian, actually, if you want to be specific. Um, so Alexander the Great, um, and uh, we'll talk about his influence in a second. Um, and then under the impression of the Romans, and by this time they're really getting tired of it, and so they're, they're looking for an opposition leader, and in, that, in, the, in, the, in the background that was what was you know, somewhat promised, right? That there, there would be a conquering king that would come to be fulfilled later. Um, so... We see that there's no strong Jewish government, but there's also no strong Jewish government. And you see that played out in the Gospels where, you know, is Herod in charge or is Pilate in charge or who really in charge? And even with Jesus' um, uh, uh, crucifixion that they, you know, kind of like sent, you know, pinballed Jesus back and forth um, between who was really in charge. And so that was actually instrumental in, all right, now this is a good time to send Jesus because, uh, one, people are looking for some sort of opposition, but it also allowed for Jesus to fill like a void that the people were looking for, for better or for worse. Um, also, the opposition that would face Jesus and the subsequent apostles um, would not be you know, laser-focused, right? Because there's different people who are not quite sure who's, who's in charge. Um, the temple had been rebuilt, so we see that Herod is building the temple. That became an instructional piece for Jesus, but it would also be an instructional piece for the apostles. It was also creating a center of influence now for Jerusalem, where Jesus would start and tell the apostles to start. And so the church in Jerusalem would grow larger um, and, uh, and be, again, a, a point of, of focus or at least a point of illustration for some of the things that are going to be said and as a point of reference for when the temple would be destroyed that this great immaculate building would come down, that it would be a reminder to those who go through that of the things that, the, that Jesus and the apostles had talked about. Um, the Greek and Roman empires have significantly proved travel uh, roads were created. Uh, this provided some sort of form of safety, or at least better safety than just traveling in you know place that was not occupied by Roman soldiers. Communication was improved. Um, now, most people in the Roman Empire spoke what language? Greek, yeah, because of Alexander the, the, the Greek, the great. <laughs> the great. Um, and so whatever he traveled, he spread Greek language. And so that was helpful because the letters could be written in Greek. And so they would all be able to read them. And if you knew Greek, you could be able to communicate with your people. And so that's helpful. You know, when we went to Honduras, those who knew more Spanish seemed to be able to communicate a lot better than those who didn't. Um, and so otherwise you're just like, I don't know how you would share the gospel with this like hand signals and illustrations and gruntings or something um and so so that actually was a was like a, a time you know hey now we can communicate with all these people and then there's another thing was that the synagogue um had developed um and there's a dispute about when the synagogue had started whether it was like during the exile um you know because they were exiled out of their country 
And, uh, but there are really places where if there were at least 10 people, they could form a synagogue. Um, and a synagogue is just kind of a gathering of people uh, together. But it was every town had a synagogue and every place that we will see that the, the, the apostles go to, particularly Paul, that he'll go to the synagogue first and he'll have at least some people that he can talk to um, and talk about God's promises and tell how Jesus would fulfill those promises. So there's a lot of things that, that we'll see historically that are ripe for not only Jesus entering the scene, but when Jesus entered the scene, he knew he wasn't going to be there forever, and his life was really cut short after only a few years of ministry on purpose, um, that then uh, the apostles would take over, and they have all of these tools that have been developed by pagan countries and, and pagan men that they can use to leverage in order to share the gospel. So, all of those things will be helpful for them, and we're going to see those things as they develop. So, what are we going to see in the book of Acts? I'll just give a quick kind of overview. Um, first, Jesus leaves, but he gives them a task to, beforehand. I mentioned it in, in chapter 1, verse 8. He's going to give them... You know, I want you to be my witnesses. And so I want you to tell people about me all over. And we're going to see that develop through the book of Acts. God confirms what they're doing, um, that what they're doing is what he's asked them to do. And we see that confirmation through these signs and miracles through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will direct them, we see that tangibly, to go here or don't go there, and that God is guiding them through the Spirit and demonstrating His power through the Spirit, through these, these, these men. We see Peter's rise as a leader. Um, at the end of John, right, compared to when he leaves Acts, we, we stop seeing Peter in the middle of Acts, um, around chapter 15. And he's, he's, at the end of John, he's sitting before Jesus, very repentant, right, kind of fallen before Jesus to standing up for Jesus and standing up for moving beyond being just a Jew to Gentiles. He denied Jesus, but now he is confirming the Gentiles. And so we see him grow as a leader. We see Paul's unexpected career change, right? He goes from seeking to throw Christians in jail to at the end of Roman or the end of Acts being a Christian in jail uh, in Rome. And so that's an interesting you know, swing of events that even the most uh, egregious of sinners can be someone who stands up for Christ. Um, we see opposition to God's work, that church conflict is part of the church, um, and that's just something that happens. We see beatings, we see jail time, we see harassment, we see suffering, and that's just part of the Christian life. And so Acts does not gloss over that, you know, there is health and wealth for everyone. Um, Gentile inclusion... We see Peter's vision, and we see that how God is expanding, because he doesn't do that right at the start, but it develops even through the book of Acts. And that they are to do so, it's not just Jews and Gentiles, but they're both together living in harmony when they were supposed to remain separate for all those years. Uh, establishment of church leaders, we'll see that, deacons and elders, and how those develop. We'll see various addresses to different people groups. Um, we see different you know, sermons, I guess, or different uh, ways to evangelize and to preach, and we kind of see some instruction on how the apostles did that. And then we'll just see what life was like during this time. There is a lot of historical, cultural things that go on that uh, kind of give us a background. Plus, 
Without the book of Acts, we don't see the background in uh, a lot of the letters that Paul writes. When he writes to the Philippians, um, we know, we can see some parallels uh, of him being thrown in a, Roman, a, a Philippian jail, a jail in Philippi, um, him being in jail in Rome and addressing some of the concerns that they had. So we can see some of that. But overall, we're going to see that the church grows from a few dozen disciples in an upper room to dozens of churches and thousands of followers in about a span of 30 years. And so that's what we're going to do as we kind of move through the book of Acts. I want to give some background of kind of how God is moving and that he's getting to kind of this maybe like final phase before really the final, final phase of his return. Um, uh, And we're living in this period of Acts right now. So, are there any questions? Hopefully it wasn't too quick. We can slow down, take a breath, or at least I can. And uh, we'll uh, pick this up in two weeks. We'll dive right into the book of Acts, and uh, hopefully you'll join me because I know I'm excited, and uh, hopefully you will be as well. All right, you guys are dismissed.